there are kind of two entities to life. The reality and our perception of it. And those are not the same. We think about them as if they're the same, but they're not. What you see in your mind isn't what's out there. It's your perception of that. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Program Life Podcast, where we want our listeners, guests, and myself to learn something new. Every two weeks, I bring in a world-class expert on a topic related to productivity, mental health, or tech. And our guest on this episode today is Moran Cerf. Moran Cerf is a French-Israeli neuroscientist, business professor, an investor, and a former hacker. In his work, Professor Cerf helps individuals and businesses harness the current knowledge of the brain to improve thinking and understanding of customers and business decisions. He is the founder of Thinkalike and B-Cube and the host and curator of PopTech, one of the top five leading conferences in the world. Cerf is also the president and co-founder of the Human Single Neuron Society. I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this episode because in this episode, unlike any other episode, we cover a variety of topics, some of which are applications of neuroscience and business, what will our future look like, philosophy and free will, and we'll also look into the game Cyberpunk 2077. So real quick, if you want my key takeaways on this episode and the show notes, just head over to programlife.info and you can also sign up for my exclusive email list. You can also follow me on Instagram, yogeshprabhu2, that is Y-O-G-E-S-H-P-R-A-B-H-U-2, and my Twitter, at yogeshprabhu03. That's enough plug-in for me, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So, Moran, welcome welcome to the show, and I'm really excited to have you on the show as you have one of the most fascinating stories I've ever heard, and it still astonishes me that... <laughs> There's still a lot of people like you that are extraordinary and like yourself. And so thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. No problem. All right. So I know when I was researching about you, I was um, astonished at how many things you had, like how much, uh, how many things you had curiosity in and how many like topics you were interested in and how many uh, topics you have knowledge about. So I'm going to do my, I have a lot of questions on a lot of different topics. So I'm going to get started with, um, with the first question, which is, um, give us a brief overview of how you ended up, uh, with your career of being a neuroscientist from being a former hacker. Sure. Um, so when I was in my early twenties, I was a hacker, as you said, this was my full-time job and this is what I thought I'm going to do for the rest of my life, and a chance encounter with a neuroscientist who was in himself a prominent neuroscientist, but also a former hacker. He worked on the German codes during World War II and cracked the codes that helped the British at the time basically change the course of the war before he became a neuroscientist. He and I had a, a chance encounter throughout a, a long evening, and we discussed back then 
the ability of neuroscience to answer questions at the heart of our life. And essentially at the end of this dinner, he said, you should quit your job as a hacker and turn to studying the brain with the same skills. And there were other uh, small incidents like that that shaped my choice. But ultimately, this was, I think, a pivotal moment and making me change careers. Yeah, and I think we all have those periods of moments um, that give us big changes in life. So I know you're an expert when it comes to applications of neuroscience and business, and many people seem to be overlooking this factor and might not even have heard of this view before, because if I'm honest, before I even researched about this, I never knew these two topics could interrelate with each other. So would you mind explaining what the role of neuroscience is in business? So I think that for a lot of uh, businesses, a key ingredient in how you think about your planning is asking questions either of yourselves or of your customers that inform your decisions going forward. Example would be marketing. In marketing, we often ask customers, what do you want to see as new features? Or what do you want the next product to not have? Or how do you want kind of the price to work and so on? So we ask customers. When it comes to managers, we often have people that work a lot on finding ways to make decisions better, but they kind of only think of how to make the right choice rather than when to make the right choice or who to be with when you make the choice. And in all those cases, we rely on our brain being able to articulate our thoughts. And what we learned in the last, say, decade is that people are not great at that. So customers don't always have the right answers. They don't really know what they want until they see that and say, oh, that's, I guess, what I want. They think that they want something to be, say, cheaper. But sometimes when you make it cheaper, they say, I guess it's too simple and too kind of mundane if it's that cheap, so I'm going to buy the more expensive one. And in that sense, asking customers is flawed because you get the wrong answer. What you want to know is the real answer, which many times lies in the person's brain, but they cannot articulate it. So neuroscience gives you access to the other part of the brain where the actual component of this person is the one that makes the choice, the one that actually changes their views because of uh, options. If you're a manager, uh, we can tell you not just a kind of how to make decisions better, but also that maybe you make decisions not right in the morning. Maybe you make decisions better in the evening. Maybe you make decisions better when you're alone, rather than with people. Maybe you make decisions better when you're uh, hungry, rather than when you're full. And the point is that you have no access to this part of you. You don't know that your brain behaves differently when you're tired than when you're awake. You think you're the same person. And neuroscience can actually help you get a reading of those differences and help you perfect your choices or understand your customers better. Yeah, that's a great explanation. So um, there's also this aspect of psychological targeting. And I wanted to know what the difference is between neuroscience and psychology in a business perspective and what can neuroscience provide us um, in business compared to psychology? So I would say that in many ways, there are kind of three errors of uh, understanding of businesses. The error that goes from, say, 200 years ago up to 200, so from 200 years ago up to 20 years ago, 
assume that customers are rational and that you can understand everything by looking at kind of the answers they give and by equations. There are all kinds of equations of supply and demand and equations of, you know, basic rules like buy low and sell high that dominated marketing and business and finance and, and economics generally for 200 years. It's just that they didn't fully explain people's behavior. So more and more, there were kind of indicators that suggested that people don't operate by those rules and that they can't explain fully how we behave. And then 20 years ago, uh, emerged this uh, winning field of behavioral economics, which basically said we should incorporate psychology in economics, and then we can understand people fully. So people are not rational. They sometimes operate against their own interests because they're angry or sad or hungry or uh, biased by something. And if we just understand their psychology, we could totally explain their behavior. And this became the, the law of the land. There are two Nobel Prizes that were given in the last 20 years to economists uh, who were also psychologists that could explain people's behavior differently. But where those uh, kind of domains halted is that they couldn't change anything. So if people make decisions that are biased and wrong and not good for them because their brain is biased and sometimes works against their kind of kind of covert or uh, interests, that's what it is. You couldn't change that. And that's where neuroscientists entered about three or four years ago and said, we can actually change that. If we can tell you how the brain works behind the scenes, we can actually tell you what governs your choices, we can help you change that. So suddenly you will make decisions that are more rational. You will make decisions that are good for you. You will change your behaviors that you don't like by understanding what are the kernels of your activity and use those uh, metrics as a way to navigate you into different directions. Yeah, and another interesting thing yeah, you you said in uh, just previously, you said that um, finding what the real answer of what customers really want, and you're saying that the brain is biased at times. So um, I think there's this book that I read that kind of relates to your ideas um, called The Elephant in the Brain, which I found really interesting, and I think you might find interesting too. And they mentioned that there was this study that was done on a split split brain patient. Um, mm -hmm where the left and right hemisphere, of course, of the brain can't communicate. And there was a subject where they flashed instructions in their left eye, which was interpreted by the right hemisphere. And the instructions said to get up and leave the room. And so the right hemisphere processed the action of getting up and leaving the room. And when he got up, the researchers asked him, where are you going? And he's replied saying that he went to get a can of Coke. Hmm. So... What I took from this was that um, our brains almost lie to us and make up stories, deceiving our, ourselves almost. So what are your thoughts on this idea of deceiving ourselves in a way to deceive others? So I think that the split brain stories, and maybe we should explain in a second how they emerge and what it is, uh, are a good way for people to explicitly see kind of in a very visceral way that in our brain, you have more than one you saying you in quotations right now. And mm -hmm. there's a variety of entities that sit there together and they vote on your actions and your behavior. And at the end of this vote, there is a majority rule that kind of wins and determines for the entire brain what would be the brain's or the person's kind of action. But we kind of forget that there were other parts of us that were against this choice and that were not aligned with the outcome. 
And in many ways, if we learn to listen to all the voices in our brain, we can see more of what we wanted rather than just the kind of bottom line. And, and maybe we should explain more concretely what it means. So split brain patients are patients who uh, had epilepsy. That's the majority of the cases. Mm-hmm. And back in the 50s and 60s, if you had epilepsy, it felt like an earthquake that spread around your brain. It started in one location and it kind of spread all over your brain. And one of the solutions for epilepsy that were employed rapidly in back in the 60s was cutting the part of the brain that connects the two hemispheres, the left and the right one, to each other. So essentially, you kind of make the brain into two brains, the left brain and the right brain, and they're separate and they don't talk to each other. Now, for the most part, there is a copy for everything that we have on the left, in the right, and vice versa. So we have double of everything. A few things exist only in one side, not the other. And those are the things that kind of make it very interesting because then the language part, which is only in the left, doesn't communicate with, say, the seeing part on the right. And that's when you have a person looking at a picture with his left eye, seeing it on the right side of the brain, but unable to articulate what he or she are seeing just because they don't have communication. And I think this gave rise to the ability to the, the fact that people started seeing that in their brain, there's a speaking part and a thinking part and a solving problem part and a deciding part and a remembering part. And they are all independent and you can totally separate them and see that, in fact, our brain is made of a coalition of many, many kind of modules rather than just one coherent entity, which is us. Yeah. And um, in the in the book, The Elephant in the Brain, they also mention that um, we they, they suggest that we have evolved with big brains because it is better adapted to the environment, but they also argue that it might not be true because um, environmental evolution might have driven us to a certain extent. Um, but there was a need for social life, which is um, the need for us to outcompete our friends and peers that actually supercharged the evolution of our brains. Brains. What do you think of this? Ooh, that's a great topic. I feel like I, I feel like I can say a lot about it. So I'll, I'll choose kind of carefully one or two points that are interesting. I would say one thing is, so humans are one of the few animals in nature that are born half-baked. You know, if you've ever seen a, a baby zebra being born, it kind of comes out into the world in minute one, and within five minutes, it already knows how to walk, and it knows who its mom is, and it knows how to uh, forage for food. It just kind of quickly, as soon as it's born, within minutes, become a living zebra that just knows how to operate in the world. Mm-hmm. Same is true for giraffes and baby puppies and most animals. And humans are the opposite. Humans are born, and if you take a baby human in the first few months of its life, it's basically useless and totally vulnerable. It can't walk, it can't talk, it can't defend itself, it can't uh, articulate what it wants. And essentially, if a predator uh, tried to attack a baby human, the baby human is pretty much kind of totally vulnerable and defenseless. We just just are coming to the world not ready. And that's part of evolution, which is basically manifested in the fact that we are born with a brain that's not ready for this world. It takes our brain a lot of time, months, to get ready for this world. So we're born and we still adapt. And we take, we take months to, to really get good at getting ready for this world. 
this allows us to also, you know, stand on two feet rather than walk on four like most animals because our brains now are at the top of our head and they're much farther from the ground. It means that uh, the way we deliver babies uh, aligns the body of the uh, mother to the uh, size of the brain of the uh, kind of infant. There are a lot of things that happen evolutionarily that allow us to do that, but they boil down to the fact that our brains, on the one hand, are very ill-equipped to deal with the world when we're born, but also become tremendously good within the first months of our life to the point that we become very quickly the most sophisticated and complex brain that we know of in nature. That is why humans in many ways are the crown of creation when it comes to thinking, because we really have a brain that is capable of learning languages and creating theory of minds and even creating ideas that are not there and sharing them among other entities and really do complex things. If you ask me what's the bottom line of what is the, the main thing that our brain uh, is capable of doing that no other brain is able to do in other animals, it is the ability to actually create imaginary ideas and share them with other brains of humans. So we can invent things that don't exist and talk about them and see them together. So unicorns don't exist in this world. There, there is no such thing as unicorn, but one person at some point in history invented the idea of a unicorn, described it in a way that other brains of humans could see in their mind, even though none of them saw a unicorn, and they all had this shared idea now of unicorns. They could operate by that, and they could come together and believe stories about unicorns and kind of create communities that share some kind of uh, dynamics because they believe in this idea. And you, you can think about unicorns, but you can talk about also... Uh, religions that are a human thing. There are no uh, monkeys who believe in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. There's no monkey who would sacrifice his life because in the next world it's going to have 72 bananas waiting for it. <laughs> uh, there are no uh, economy. is another invention that's remarkable. Like Humans can actually all agree that a piece of paper is worth something and they're willing to die for this piece of paper or steal or risk their life for this piece of paper. Mm -hmm. That's also a remarkable idea. All of that allowed us as humans to not just invent complex ideas and believe in them, but also operate in groups. So we can all form countries and coalitions and uh, partnerships that all work together. And this is a remarkable idea that is prevalent in humans and in very few other entities in nature. Yeah. And you mentioned twice already that the, uh, the fact that the brain makes stories. And in one of your talks, you mentioned um, that the brain is almost like a machine that nature gave to make meaning of life and form and weave memories into an experience. And our brain takes uh, in information that is out of our memories and makes a story out of it. And is there any way we can control these memories that our mind makes up? So it's very, very hard to do that, to control that, but we can practice getting better at it. Essentially, humans' brain are remarkable in uh, taking very few data and, and data, data points, samples, and making them into a story. So, you know, you, you, you go to play basketball with your friends and you wear the blue underwear and you win the game once. And then you play a week after and you wear the same underwear and you win twice. And you immediately, inevitable, come up with a story that says, oh my God, every time I wear the blue underwear, I win the basketball game. I should wear them all the time. And you, that's it. You come up with a story. You take a pattern of very few incidents and you weave it into a narrative that is there's some lucky underwear that are the ones I use to play to win basketball games. And even if you then after five games of winning streak 
lose ones, you kind of say, yeah, today I wore the underwear, but I didn't wash them before. So that's why. And you kind of, you, you have really a hard time breaking out of a story that you made up five minutes ago, just because you had a few incidents. You, you, I don't know, you walk and you see someone smiling at you and other something, you say, I must have the, the, this, this amazing uh, shirt today because everyone is smiling at me. And, and so this is our brain's capacity. Now it has good things and bad things. The good thing is that it allows us to really find patterns in a complex world where other animals don't see the patterns. So we really can see that the, I don't know, the, that the, the moon arrives uh, every night in the same time and we can understand that there's daylight and, and, and daytime and we can understand uh, tides because we see patterns that are really long-term. Like every, every couple of months, there's a change in season and we can actually understand that the world has seasons. Most animals are suffering from a challenge by which they can't find the meaning in complex ideas. So we have a lot of good things, but it also comes with the baggage of we see patterns all the time everywhere and we're quick to come up with stories that are not true just to explain them. And that is why the human species for many decades, centuries, you know, believe that there's uh, all kinds of uh, gods that control things that we couldn't explain ourselves and it's easier to come up with a story that attributes Tides to the god of water is upset with me right now. That's why there's a you know, high tide. So we kind of suffer from that, but also uh, enjoying the benefits and the fruits of that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And um, just going back to um, the history of your side, when you were a hacker, how did the notion? How did this notion of understanding human behavior come into play? So hackers, I think, have three skills that they're really good at. Oh, the street skills that I would say you need in order to be a great hacker. One is you have to understand computers. You have to know how to program. You have to understand something about kind of how machines work. You can't do it without having some knowledge of the mechanics of that. Because at the end of the day, yeah. it does involve computers. And you have to kind of know what's a server, what's a client, how does the protocols that govern the internet works. You can't, you can't not know that. The second thing that I think you have to have is some scientific mindset. You have to know a little of statistics. You have to also know how to look at problems from different angles. You have to know that if something works multiple times, you now want to try to find a way to go the other way and break it and see if it still holds. And that's how you understand. This is kind of how scientists think. If something works, they try to break it and try bend it and mold it and, and change it until they kind of see what it actually does. And the third thing, that's the thing that you kind of asked about, you have to understand people. You have to have a really good theory of mind or empathy you have to kind of really be able to see the world from the point of view of another person both so that you can really kind of become a good uh, psychologist in terms of like changing people's minds but mostly so you can understand what flaws they make and i'll give you a concrete example when i was a hacker uh, many times we were asked to break into a website and you go to this website and there's a page that basically asks you for the username and the password and we had to think about the programmer on the other side. The guy who built this website, what kind of a guy is he and what things he may have not thought about that we could think about? So we said, okay, this person uh, lives in our world. Uh, he is probably our age. So this person must have assumed that uh, people's names are uh, one word. There are no spaces in the, in the name. And maybe names are uh, up to, I don't know, 20 characters long. That's an assumption that is pretty solid in the world we live in right now, that names could not be longer than 20 characters. So maybe this guy who programmed the uh, username and password page 
assume that all the names that you would put there would not be longer than, say, 50 characters long. I'll try to put a username that is 10,000 characters long. And just by doing that, maybe I'm going to make the website crash. Or maybe I'm going to bypass the security because the code behind the scenes would crash or, or allow me to do something that it wouldn't allow me normally because the programmer did not think that someone's going to try to get a username with 10,000 characters because no one does that. So you kind of put yourself in the mind of the other person and you say, what thing would he or she not think about? Let's try those and see if it helps. And in that sense, I think hackers are really, really good in empathizing and understanding the other person and in theory of mind and putting themselves in the mind of the other person and seeing what would they not think about that I can use against them. Yeah. You said in an interview that um, sometime that you think that artists, hackers, and good investors are good at tapping into someone else's brain, like you just mentioned. And can, can you delve deep on how these um, careers are similar and how do these different careers or maybe even other careers that you know show the ability to tap into other people's brains? I think, I think it's very hard to train for that. In that sense, uh, some people just kind of got it and some people do not. And it's very, I mean, I don't think that at any school or university we really teach you well how to really read other people and become more empathetic to them. It's something that some people get, some people don't get. So in many ways, that skill is a skill that is uh, acquired by kind of exposure to life. And to an extent, a lot of hackers fail because many hackers who are good in the first two points meaning they're really good programmers and they're really good statistician or detectives, it comes typically with being also an introvert, with being very much oriented towards kind of working on codes and programming by yourself other than being a communal person in society. So the good hackers are rare because they typically are either the first or the second, but not both. The way to train for that is to actually, and I'm, I'm saying something that is like being said a lot these days, is to expose yourself to a lot of people that are different than you and really spend time with them so that you learn how they think. Uh, there's a saying by uh, former President Obama uh, when he was about to leave office in the White House. And at the time, this must be 2012, there were a lot of uh, trolls on the internet who said bad things and people would respond. And if you looked at the comment section on the websites, you'll see a lot of people fighting and arguing online. And he said something that stuck with me, where he said, like, if you're tired of arguing with people online, try meeting them in person. And the point is that when you meet someone in person, you almost are unable to not start seeing the world from their perspective. So if you're a left-wing Democrat uh, and you're really full of hatred and animosity towards your counterpart in the Republican uh, party, you mostly don't hang out with them. You kind of argue with them on the internet or you argue with them on Twitter uh, or on a comment site on a website, but you don't really spend time with them. And if you did, you would get closer to them. You will be convinced by some of their arguments. You will uh, understand how they think. And if your intentions are to be a hacker, you will also know how to do things to kind of counter attacks by them or to get into their systems. And I think that that's a skill that a lot of hackers do a really good job in. They just spend a lot of time with the people that try to hack into and understand how they think. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I just want to now move on into like the more futuristic technological side of things. Um, there was this um, recent game that you might have heard, but um, this recent game that was released called Cyberpunk 2077. 
and it I takes you it. into like <laughs> it takes you into a dystopian era where technology is really advanced and is redefining who and what we really are. And a lot of these, uh, a lot of questions that pop up into people's mind now is that is it is it possible to upload your mind into a computer? Okay, so I, I actually know a little bit about the game Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven because I was asked about it and I actually spent time trying to understand what's the story behind it, and it does kind of describe a world where our brain is fully connected to machines and we have kind of full interface between the two. Uh, we call this thing a BMI brain machine interface, uh, and we're getting there already to an extent, and we can do a better job uh, in getting there fully in the next couple of years to the point that. Uh, we're going to have to decide if that's the world we want to live in. So, so maybe I should, I should say kind of a few things about it. Mm-hmm. When it comes to connecting the brains to machines, there are three challenges. And people think that one of them is the hardest, but actually the other two are much harder. The two kind of the three challenges, uh, the first one is how to actually get the chip, the device into the brain. It's, really hard to get stuff into the brain. The brain uh, is uh, very, very kind of secured in a bony structure we call the skull, and there are very little uh, ability to penetrate the skull. So if you, you know, if, if, if you want to get to the heart, I can give you some drug uh, that you get in the pharmacy that actually gets to the heart and does things to it. If you want to get to the liver, we can give you a d- different drug that's the liver. If you want to get a drug that gets to the brain, it's very hard. There are barriers that stop most chemicals getting to the brain and essentially there's a challenge in getting stuff in the brain if you want to get a chip that is the size of say a quarter into the brain the only way to get there right now is to drill a hole in the skull and get it directly into the brain so any delivery of something into the brain requires a brain surgery mm-hmm. which is expensive yeah. risky difficult and so on so the first challenge is really not a challenge of uh, building a d- the device that will get to the brain, but actually just getting it. Let's say we, even if we had a chip existing right now, it's just hard to get it inside the brain. So that's challenge number one. It's a challenge for uh, neurosurgeons, for uh, doctors, and for patients, and it's the first kind of step we have. The second challenge, it's the one that people think is the most uh, uh, prevalent, but actually I think it's the least one, is if we is how to build this chip. So how to build something that speaks to the brain? This we basically overcame. So neuroscientists like myself and my colleagues, we know now what's the language of the brain, and we know how to build devices that interface with the brain. So if you manage somehow to get this chip into the brain, we know how to read uh, brain activity from cells, how to stimulate those cells and make them uh, operate. So we know this thing. There's a lot more to do. Uh, there are challenges of engineering, like we can build a chip that speaks to some cells, but not the others. Um, we have to kind of make sure that the brain doesn't fight this chip when you put it inside by creating inflammation and infections and actually kind of trying to stop us from putting a foreign object in the brain. But that's a smaller problem than the first and the third one, which I'm going to mention in a second. But everyone thinks, oh my God, how would you even do that? This is something that we pretty much got over already. We know how to speak to the brain, how to read and write to it. The third problem is legal and regulatory. We have not decided right now if it's okay to put implants in the brain, if we should allow people to do that, if people want to do that, if they should be uh, uh, getting something that is given to them by doctors or by 
the industry, by the commercial world. This is something that that is kind of being debated right now by a lot of people, and we have not overcome that. And that's actually a bigger challenge right now than building a chip. So mm-hmm. be- between those three things, at the end of the day, at some point, we will have that. And what we will have is a device that a neurosurgeon can put inside your brain, and this device can read and write into your neurons directly and communicate information using, say, Bluetooth or some wired uh, wireless communication to the outside world. And then someone can control brain cells in your mind and activate and deactivate them. What we can do with that is, uh, at the very least, help you uh, control bad things in your brain, say, stop epilepsy or uh, stop Parkinson's by kind of activating cells and making them not work when they don't need to work. And at the most, actually give you access to the world around you. So you would walk in the streets and you ask yourself, how do I get to the next Starbucks? And you would just think this thought and suddenly the neurons uh, will ask the question, the chip will interpret the question, will transfer the data to a machine nearby that will ask Wikipedia or Google Maps or pick your uh, software. Where is a nearby uh, Starbucks? The answer will come back, be delivered back to those neurons and you will suddenly feel that you know where Starbucks is. So from your perspective, from your experience, you will just ask yourself, where is the new Starbucks? Oh, right, it's here on the left. And you wouldn't know that between you asking and answering the question, all of uh, the world's most sophisticated machinery was involved in the question and gave you the answer. So it could be where Starbucks is, or it could be uh, what should I have for dinner, or any complex question that uh, requires the internet, or like when was World War II? And suddenly you would just know, oh, it was in these years. So it would kind of uh, be you know, seamless that you would be able to interface with the internet and get the answers. Wow, that w- that's a really good explanation, yeah. Um, and just the thing that popped up into my head um, is that you said that um, getting into the brain is obviously uh, a difficult task. Um, where um, My question is, when do you think we will be able to actually do this um and how far are we because right now we can see people like elon musk um pushing this um with his Neuralink project um uh, on getting into the brain and almost um uh, making it so that people can move again um you know paralyzed people can move so how far do you think uh we are from it uh from that future so i think that in a way the answer is either uh, not far at all as in like we already have that or very far so so it's 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 not far at all if we regulatory accept that if we allow elon musk so elon musk knows how to put it so i'm using elon musk as like an example for a person but we know how to put stuff inside people's brains and interact with them but right now we only do that in clinical contexts so mm-hmm. uh, we can do it if you have alzheimer or if we have parkinsons or if you have other types of tremors or if you have a severe depression that we want to stop with a chip or an implant that will fight that, or if you have uh, epilepsy. So there are many conditions that allow us to put something in your brain to help you, but you wouldn't get it if you're a regular person. So if you, your guest, or if me or one say, hey, I want to have direct access to Wikipedia from my mind, there wouldn't be a case where you would be allowed to do that. And that's because we wouldn't take the risk of having you go to a surgery, regulatory and also clinically. That's where it is. So I think that the challenge right now is the fact that we just don't do that. So Elon Musk, for instance, for him to develop that, he had to choose a clinical kind of vessel 
that he yeah. would work and he chose Alzheimer and he chose other uh, conditions that he said he's going to solve. And that's what allows him to put a chip inside the brain. But he wouldn't be allowed to do that to any person right now. So it's it's allowed. It's possible, sorry, but not allowed. So that's why you wouldn't see it anytime soon, even though technically it's possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and there's one thing that I learned that there's three main assumptions that um, uh, researchers have made about um, uh, the question of, is it possible to upload your mind into a computer? And one is that your mind is uh, your brain structure and arrangement and biochemistry. Everything about the mind can be found in the brain, which is called physicalism. And it keeps our domain within the natural law. And then the second assumption is that at some point we will know the brain well enough to stimulate all aspects of it on a computer and be able to make a digital mind copy and then the third assumption is that computer software can host your mind, which means the mind is almost computable. And this is called computability. So which one of these do you see being most reliable and most helpful to us in the future? And what could be the possible drawbacks? So I, I think that's not the least. The least one is computability. Like what we know, basically, I, I kind of said in a previous answer to you that we know how to interface in the brain. And that was an approximation, but not the true answer. So mm-hmm. we know that the language of the brain is a firing of neurons. So we know that the brain is made of many, many cells, and those cells speak to one another by bursts of electrical activity. We call this firing. And we know that the frequency, like how many uh, kind of spikes, we call them, are there, tells you something about what the brain cell cares about. So if you listen to one brain cell, uh, it's quiet for a while, and then at some point it starts like really being active, and we assume that this cell being active indicates that whatever the cell codes for is happening right now. So if you have a brain cell that codes uh, you being hungry, then the cell is quiet when you're not hungry, and then it starts firing a lot when you're hungry. And that's if we had electrodes next to, next to it, we could tell, aha, right now the gash is hungry because the cell that was quiet before is firing, and it would fire as long as you are hungry still, and once you get full, it will stop firing. And this is one brain cell that codes you being hungry. And like that, there's a brain cell that calls you thinking of your mom, another one thinking of your dad, one that says that you're in love, one that says that you're maybe uh, tired. And basically, if we knew each cell's property, why it makes him fire or not, we would be able to decode all of the actions. This is an approximation, but not the reality. So a cell is a living kind of entity that has so many properties beyond the simple one, the firing, not firing. It's made of many, many sub-molecules, and it has uh, other ways which cause information, and it has information that doesn't kind of uh, manifest itself in firing and so on. So we can kind of explain things simply with this notion in mind, but when we go to the details, it's really an approximation. Like We, we many times find cells that don't fire at all uh, when you're hungry in the morning, but fire off when you're hungry in the evening. So the cells kind of code hunger, but only under this condition. Or some cells that code hunger without actually firing, they just call that by, by having many fire together. So if one cell is uh, telling you something, it's only part of the information, but you have to listen to many of them together. So I'm kind of complicating the story a lot more by saying we we can simplify it by saying it's computable, but when we start going to the details, it becomes more and more complex. So of the three, that's the least uh, true thing. What I think is true is that in many ways, the human experience is a brain thing that we can uh, 
ultimately translate into action. Uh, so the assumption, and here I'm not, I know some of the audience will not you know, uh, align with me, that everything that we are is in our brain. That if we really understand the brain, we can understand you fully, is the current belief among neuroscientists. And it's the operating mechanism, and, and we believe that. So, so we believe that if we were to be able to read all the brain cells at the same time, and know each cell's properties, we could predict all of your future actions and, mani and manipulate them fully. Now, it, it takes away the notion of soul, of, you know, kind of uh, spirituality. It, it takes away a lot, but right now that's the operating uh, assumption among neuroscientists, which is hard to stomach for a lot of us because it means that we're basically computable, all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And going back to uh, the notion of Cyberpunk 2077, um, it kind of shows us what the future might look like. And uh, what I wanted to ask you is, in your opinion, do you agree with it? Or do you what, what do you see the future will look like uh, when we could connect our brains to the cloud and, you know, outsource parts of our thinking? What, what do you think that would look like? So I would say that I'm, I'm normally an optimist. I really much... Uh, very much think that uh, things always uh, would be better than they are right now outside of this domain. On this one, I'm pretty much a pessimist. So I think that we will have uh, a day not far from now where humans' brains will be connected to machines, where we will have interfaces between brain and machine. And I think it will be a kind of very exciting and a very good kind of moment for, for humanity, we, we would all want that, and it will lead quickly to terrible outcomes. So, so it, it will start great and end up terrible. And here's what I mean by that. I think that the biggest risk to humanity right now is what I call neural inequality. And this is manifested by us developing the technology to have neural implants be placed in a human brain that will give that human smarts, higher IQ, better decision-making, better control of their body, better everything, but will be available only to some and not know everyone. And what will happen is a forking of the human species, meaning some will get it. These people will become smarter. Some will not get it because they might not be able to afford it financially. And before long, you will have some people who are getting smarter and smarter. They can build more and more things for themselves. They can get even more smart and smart and smart. And they essentially become farther and farther from the other people who cannot start the race. And then you have really two humans, two races, ones who can talk among themselves, who are super smart, who are healthier, who are wealthier. They can do many more things that the other group just cannot. And they wouldn't even want to interact with them. They wouldn't want to mate with them. They wouldn't want to basically have them as part of their species. And if not a war between the two species, at the very least, just two kind of entities that coexist but don't care about each other. The example would be us and ants. We, we understand that there are ants in the world. We look at them. We, we look at our colonies. We study them. We sometimes play with them. You know, it's like ant farms that kids have. But we never try to sit for a dinner and bring two ants and sit them in front of us and try to chat with the ants. We assume that they are so inferior to us that there is no point in us trying to make conversations with them. This would be the end of this kind of spiral between us and the new species of people that are much, much smarter version of us. There wouldn't be just like humans like us 
with different IQ, they would be totally different humans that wouldn't want to interact with us at all. That's the kind of pessimistic outcome that I see from us going there. Wow, that's really interesting. And um, let's look at this in a more um, educational perspective on, and how do you think like teachers in schools um, can make use of this technology that are attuned to us specifically with the power of neuroscience to ensure that we're learning at the optimal rate? How do you think teachers in schools can use this? So here I'm the opposite of what I said before. Here I'm totally optimistic. So the the current use of neuroscience that I think is phenomenal is in helping people get quick feedback on their brain activity that is tangible and useful. So for example, I teach hundreds of people every week uh, as part of my job as a professor. And I have some you know, tools to understand whether what I say is kind of embraced and absorbed by their brains, but not a lot. You know, I can see that they maybe nod their heads in the right moment, or you can tell a joke and they laugh quickly after. I can say, okay, the joke landed. But in a way, there's no way for me to really know if what I say landed, if they're going to remember that, if they see it the way I imagined they should see it, if they're going to use it the right way, if they actually will remember it tomorrow. None of those I can do anything about. I just say something and I hope that it worked. And in a way, their brain knows the answer. So in their brain, there are brain cells that supposedly code what I say in their memory. So if I had access to those brain cells, I would know if what I said right now was actually coded or not, registered or not. Uh, when I uh, tell them about some complex idea, in my mind, it sits in one location. My hope is that I can transfer that to their brain into the same location. And I believe that it works, but if I had access to their brain, I could see whether the neurons in their brain fire in the same patterns that, that my brains uh, fire and see if I actually managed to deliver the idea perfectly. Right now, through the tools that my colleagues and I develop, we can actually put something on the head of the audience, let's say, or the students in my class, and in real time, get a reading of their brain activity and whether the messages landed, remembered, registered the way I want, and give me feedback that says, what you just said right now, everyone got it, move on. Or student number three in the class didn't get it. She thinks that what you said is A when you said B. Explain to her again in that way so she would get it the way you wanted it. Or on average, everyone thinks you speak too slow. Speed up. Or on average, everyone thinks that what you say right now is boring. Find a different way to make it more engaging. Those feedbacks are essential for teachers. And right now, because we can use very simple tools like EEG, a device that measures brain activity very crudely, but it's sophisticated enough to give us the readings that we need, we can get feedback from the brains of audiences that tell us whether it worked or not. And that, I think, will change education and interaction significantly. Yeah, and I do definitely agree with that. And um, just re- linking back to when you said EEG, there's this um, uh, there's this study that I saw where, um, where for example, um, let's just say... Um, Assume, let's just assume that you are one of the individuals identified with the brain profile deficiency and because you happen to have anger management problems and you are then subjected to a series of neurofeedback sessions following which it is concluded that you are now an inspirational leader. 
And putting this conclusion aside, it kind of raises ethical questions if that um, kind of personality change can be allegedly induced as such. So like, example, how would family and friends react to um, that? How would family and friends react to you since they probably they probably like you for who you are? And mm. even worse, if the effects of that change serve the company's interests first and yours the second at best. So what is your opinion on the ethnicity behind the applications of neuroscience in business? So, I mean, there's a lot to pack on this question. So I think that uh, generally we have a few stories kind of in neuroscience about people who had some kind of brain change happen to them. And with that brain change, there was also a personality change. They became nicer or meaner or rude or more risk-tolerant or risk-averse. Things happen to them just because of brain change. And as a whole, all of those stories are told as a bad story. Oh my God, this person changed entirely because of a brain injury, because of surgery, because of something that happened to them. That's not good because who they are is the true self and any change of that is bad for them. Now, I think that uh, in that sense, there's a desire for humans to be consistent. Like we kind of uh, love who we are right now. And if someone says, I can give you something that's going to change your mind and make you a different person, we always find it scary. Like we kind of know this person, we don't want to uh, expose ourselves to the new person that's in our brain and who might they be and what will it kind of unveil about us. Yeah. In that sense, I think that not a lot of people are going to want that. Uh, I think that uh, you asked also about what if it happens in the context of business. And I think that uh, that's kind of the world we're heading towards if we really open you know, the, the floodgate of neural implants. I think that personality changes are not hard to generate with very basic kind of manipulations to the brain activity. And I think we are not equipped to deal with that. I, I, I give an example that would be very concrete. We all know that if we just pour a little bit of ethanol on our mucosal glands, which is a fancy name to say that we drink alcohol, mm-hmm. we become different. Like you drink two glasses of wine, and suddenly people sound funnier. Uh, you are a little bit different in how you respond to emotional uh, challenges. Uh, things happen. So we all can, can imagine a basic change to our brain. This example speaks to a molecular and more chemical change that leads us to behave differently. Now think about that being your constant state. Like you always are different. You always find things funnier. You're always uh, a little bit more aggressive or you're always a little bit uh, more s- slower to respond to things. This is something that, that is, to all people, sound like a risky, bad frightening thing, even if they're in a state that they don't like themselves. If you take people that are going through a hard time and they say, I hate myself, like a sentence that they, you know, they say kind of as a rant, if you offer them to really change themselves, to wake up tomorrow with a different brain, their personality, I believe, and there's little evidence to speak to that, people don't want it. They want their brain that they know as their main kernel of identity. Mm-hmm, yeah. And... um. Now I want to move on to a more um, the more the perspective of free will because um, I know you're more you're also interested in that uh, topic. So, 
In your opinion, what extent do people have free will, and has has it changed over time from before when you're a hacker, and how do you think it will change in the future? So, that's a great topic and so fascinating. So, so, so on free will, generally, neuroscientists are uh, spending a lot of time philosophizing, and the truth is that we didn't get farther uh, from where we were about forty years ago. About 40 years ago, a neuroscientist uh, named Benjamin Libet in San Francisco ran a basic study where he had people play a mini game where they had a clock kind of revolve around them. Then he asked them to press a button to stop the clock whenever they wanted to. And then he asked them to uh, tell him when they felt the urge to stop the clock. Kind of, was it a second before you pressed it, maybe a fraction of a second? And people kind of found it confusing, but ended up giving him some answer that indicated that maybe half a second before you press the button, you wanted to press the button. So he kind of separated the press from the will to press. And what he shows in this first experiment was that if you look at the reactivity of those people in the study, you could predict that they're going to press the button not half a second before, like they felt, but maybe three seconds before or the extremist three seconds, sometimes less. But, but the point is that he basically said there are three moments there. The moment your brain actually generates the desire, the moment you feel the urge, and the moment you actually manifest it. There's the will, the button press, and the emergent property of the desire, which people have no access to. So you know about your desire only when you feel it. You don't know that your brain already was creating, manufacturing this desire fraction of a second before you felt it. This study was replicated for many, many uh, years since in many ways using many devices, including my own work that showed that we can do that. And it got us to an understanding that a lot of neuroscientists share that is kind of summarized by the fact that when you think you want something, it's already seconds after your brain wanted it. So we know that your experience of the present is flawed in that you're usually late to the game. When you want to eat the salad, we could have known that seconds before you felt it, because it's written in your brain and we know how to read it. However, it doesn't answer the main question, which is when did it actually start? When was the moment that your brain decided and was this a uh, random moment, a free will moment, or was it written in your genes from the moment you were born? For that, we've got no good answer after 40 years of investigating. It's kind of like the, uh, the physicist study about uh, the Big Bang. We can go back in time to the very first moment where the universe started expanding, but not before that. We don't know what happened just before the Big Bang. And so we're getting closer and closer to the very first moment, but we don't know how this moment started and what was there before. In that sense, I'm giving you a terrible answer because I'm walking you through a lot of research without the coolness that you were hoping for, which is doing absolutely a lot. We don't know anything about it. We're just stuck we're the same place we were before, all we know is that your experience of free will is definitely not true. Whatever you think was your decision definitely happened a lot later after your brain made a choice and just didn't tell you. It's all interesting, but not the main thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. And uh, now we're almost hit the, the one hour mark. And I would just like to wrap this episode. And I would like to ask you one last question. And like I always do at the end of each episode, I always relate back to uh, the topic of Stoicism. And Stoicism is one of my favorite philosophies of life. And I want to know your opinion on this quote, which links back to 
what you were talking about at the start, which was uh, the brain making stories about memories. And uh, this quote is by Epictetus. So he said, it is not events that disturb people. It is their judgments concerning them. So what is your opinion on this quote and how does it apply to your life and the work that you do? So that's a great way to end. I, I, I feel that I was a bit kind of academic and, and maybe a little bit boring in giving you a long answer. So I'll try to steer away from that and talk a little bit philosophy. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, towards the end. Uh, in the end, there are kind of two entities to life. The reality and our perception of it. And those are not the same. We think about them as if they're the same, but they're not. What you see in your mind isn't what's out there. It's your perception of that. We know that, mm -hmm. for example, uh, our eyes can only capture about one ten trillionth of what's out there in terms of uh, rays of light. But they all exist. There are gamma rays and uh, radio waves and uh, microwaves. They all exist. We can even sense them with devices, but we don't see them. We don't see x-rays, even though they're there. We don't experience them. So we would describe the world around us as if it doesn't exist. Like we would say, oh, there's a room. And if someone asked you to describe the room, you would say there are books and there's a painting and there's a wall and there's a floor and a ceiling. You wouldn't say and there's tons of x-rays running around. It's just not something that we can really think about, even though they are there, because they're not part of our experience of our perception. And in that sense, making it less academic, this is also how we live life. We kind of uh, speak about our brain as if it's a sponge that experiences the world and not as if it's creating the world. So we would say, I'm so sad because my girlfriend said this to me and uh, it really hurt me. But the reality is that a lot of the steps from this was said to you being hurt happened in your mind. Yes, your girlfriend said something bad. This turned into molecular vibrations that spread in the air, got to your ears, moved the eardrum and made uh, in your cognitive uh, uh, auditory cortex some uh, activity that led to a thought and you chose to this thought as a negative one that ended up activating your amygdala and made you feel sad. That's a process that happened mechanically. But you attribute the sadness to the uh, cause of the outside world and you kind of put the connections and you say, I don't want more of it and I want less of that or more of this. All of those things are your integration of the world and putting kind of cause and effect on events that uh, were really kind of mechanical events out there. And in that sense, what I advocate for is a reminding of that to people that's constant, because you can control more of the world if you say, I heard the words that came from uh, this woman or that man, but whether I'm going to get said or not is a different thing I control. When I uh, eat something, my uh, teeth or my, my, my mouth chewed the food, but what happens afterwards, how I enjoy it, how I remember it, is in my own brain. And I can choose to say, this was the best dinner I had, or this was okay, or I'm going to uh, make a memory of it because I'm going to remember how the aroma filled my nose and made me feel great about myself, or it was just a regular meal. All of those things happen in your mind, and they're independent of the actual food. The food is one aspect of that that you make into memory. And I think the Stoics were very kind of good in thinking about this separation, between reality and our perception of it. And that's maybe something that we should all learn from them and repeat to ourselves, that the world doesn't do things to us. Our brain makes meaning out of things and we can choose what meanings to make of things constantly. Yeah, and just to add on to that, that, that really, that's a great uh, explanation. And 
Um, I think one of the one of uh, the great examples that I've heard that relates to this quote is like if someone uh, if someone like for example your friend your best friend didn't invite you to his birthday party for example and you feel really sad and emotional to it uh, because he didn't invite you but then you realize that um, his birthday party was actually cancelled later on um, uh, because his I don't know his uh, grandmother passed away or something like that. And then you feel almost a bit uh, better for yourself, you know, and it's almost like um, telling yourself a different story that actually makes you a bit more happier. And that's what I take from this quote. And I definitely agree on what you said there. I, I say it in a different way. I mean, in a similar way. I say basically, when you miss a train, you can miss a train by a second or by an hour. And we ask, well, like, what, what do you prefer? Do you prefer to kind of see the train leaving just when you come? Or do you prefer to be late by one hour? It doesn't matter. Because people, in some, some sense, they prefer to be late by one hour, even though at the end of the day, it's the same thing. You miss a train. But somehow, the kind of perception of, I could have done it, and I can roll back time and imagine the one traffic stop that I slowed down on, and if I just didn't stop, I'm going to make it. This makes us kind of live a reality that kind of keeps hurting us. It keeps kind of telling a story in our mind that we uh, blame ourselves and, and we kind of reiterate events we, we, we didn't do right. And I think that that is a challenge that if we can take away from us, our life is going to be just happier. Yeah, definitely. And that's a great way to end this. So thank you so much, Moran, for coming on to this show again. Pleasure, and I think you did a good job. I hope I, I managed to uh, not come out. It's too academic and give you something. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. It's fine. It was a great, great experience talking to you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure.